Well, good morning. Let's uh, turn in our Bibles to First uh, Thessalonians chapter five. I was still standing back there, expecting there was a whole program here. That's coming, though, right? Well, Christmas is nearly upon us, and um, of course, in addition to remembering the birth of Christ, for after all, He is the reason for the season. There, most people will spend it thinking about giving and receiving gifts. And um, our message this morning actually is all about gifts. And uh, we're going to study about them in 1 Thessalonians 5. Uh, Christmas is a time of gift giving. If you look at the history of it, it actually is probably somewhat related to the wise men bringing gifts to the Lord Jesus. But um, don't look under the uh, tree if you have one or don't expect anybody to bring you gold, frankincense, or myrrh. Probably not going to happen. Um, but Christmas is a time of gift giving, and I, I want to see, I want you to see with me this morning from this chapter, the gifts that you have from the Lord Jesus Christ, and they will be better than anything you will receive this Christmas. I will guarantee you that. So first Thessalonians chapter five, we're going to read, um, through it, uh, verse by verse as we go, and, uh, we'll look at these section by section. So, starting with verse 12, that's where we left off last week. And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace among among yourselves. So the Lord has given gifts to the church, and to this local church here, he has given the gift of elders. Did you know that elders are a gift to the church? They are. They're a gift to the church. After planting many churches um, in the New Testament times, the early, the early days of the church, Paul made it his goal to send to either establish elders in every place or to send back uh, those who worked with him to see that elders were established or appointed in every church. We read that in Titus 1.5. The Bible tells us in Acts 20.28 20, that elders are raised up by the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit of God who appoints elders in a local assembly. Elders are given to the local assembly uh, to shepherd the flock of God, the Bible says, which he has purchased with his own blood. And so you see the value that God has placed on every individual believer who is in a local church. Um, He says that he purchased you by his own blood. That he has set elders over you to shepherd, to guide, to guard you. So how are you to respond to this gift that the Lord has given to you, the gift of elders. First of all, this, the passage we looked at in verse 12 says, you are to recognize those who labor among you. That is, to know them. Well, I hope, we're not such a big church that you don't know who the elders are, but in case you don't, um, the guy in the red shirt in the back, that's Eric. The guy who showed up this morning, that's Howard. 
<laughs> and and uh, yours truly. We are the elders um, of the assembly here. It says you should know or recognize the elders, not just by name. So you've got the names now, Howard, Eric, and Don. But really know them. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 5, You know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. So that knowledge there is not simply that, oh yeah, that's Paul, or that's Timothy, or whatever. But it's knowing them, knowing their lives, and really mimicking or imitating uh, them as well. 2 Thessalonians 3, 7 says this, For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us. The sheep are to know the shepherds, and the sheep are to follow them. I want to ask you a question. Why would Howard and Eric work full-time jobs, work hard for the supply of their need, and then at the end of the day, and on the weekends, and throughout the day even, uh, during their free time during the day, lunch breaks, or, or even during their work day, why do you think that they would give of their free time to pour out their lives for the saints? Why would they spend time to pray and to visit and to counsel and to teach and to preach and to minister to your needs? Because they are shepherds who care for the flock. They care for you. What makes a man throw open the doors of his home and say, you know what, you can come. You can be here. You can take freely from me. You can uh, take of my time, take of my energies, take of what the Lord has taught me, take of my food, whatever. Why would they the, um, make themselves or, or open their doors of their home like this? Why would they make themselves vulnerable and open for attacks. Why would they expose? Why would he expose himself and his family um, to spiritual warfare? Why would they be the object of ridicule and unjust accusations? Why would they spend so much time studying the Scripture and praying for the saints? What makes a man stay at his post when others flee? I can tell you, it's because they know how valuable you are. To the Lord, purchased with his own blood. His blood was shed for you. So, the, so Paul is saying here, look, know these men who labor among you and imitate them. Know them and follow them. Paul says in, the, in uh, 2 Thessalonians, they are over you in the Lord and admonish you. There's a, there's another term for elders in the scripture is actually overseer. And the idea there is that they are like shepherds who watch over their flocks. You know, the uh, Christmas story talks about how the angels appeared to the shepherds who were abiding in the fl- with their flock at night. They were overseeing their flock. And that's the idea of an overseer, somebody who sees what is going on in the lives of the individual saints and the corporate body, and they uh, oversee that. Watching out for the flock. The Bible says um, that those who are your elders are actually going to give an account of your life. So that means that we, we know you. We know what's going on in your life. And we have to ultimately give an account. I hope you live in such a way 
that we will be able to do that with joy uh, to the Lord. It's in your best interest. So the Bible says in Hebrews 13, 7, Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. Recognize or know them. Next, it says to esteem the elders very highly in love for their works sake. I had some great news uh, this week. My, uh, I have a niece. I have several nieces, but my oldest niece, uh, she's been dating this guy for like four years. And uh, everybody, you know, every time we see her, we go, ah, any news? And, you know, nothing. And she's been waiting patiently. And so she got engaged this week. So big, exciting news, and it's really encouraging for her. And so I said, tell me all about it. You know, just give me the whole scoop. She says, well, I'll just give you the condensed version of it. First of all, he took me to this very nice restaurant, and he uh, popped out a a box, and and there was this ring. I said, that's great. She goes, no, it wasn't. She says it was a Cracker Jack ring. (laughs) So, you know. Candy-coated popcorn, peanuts, and a prize, right? And the prize was a Cracker Jack ring. And, uh, and she looked at it, and she goes, and she's very um, uh, vocal about everything, you know, and very, uh, she's a redhead, so, you know, that's <laughs> part of it. Excuse me if I've offended any redheads here. Um, her scornful reply was, I am not amused. But the dinner went on, and a little later in the restaurant, he got down on one knee, and she thought, okay, this is carrying it a bit too far. You know, the Cracker Jack ring was enough. But this time he popped open a real ring box in a really nice engagement ring and asked her to marry him. And she was so proud of that ring. Of course, she lives in Canada, and, uh, you know, she showed it to everybody up there, but that wasn't sufficient enough. She was so proud of what she got that she took pictures or had somebody take pictures of her finger and then posted it on Facebook and made sure that in case I didn't see Facebook, I got my own personal copy of the, of the uh, picture of the ring. And she made sure all of her family and friends saw it. She treasures that ring. If you're a single lady here this morning... Um, and you receive a Cracker Jack ring at Christmas time, you won't hold it in high esteem, will you? Nobody would. But if you receive an engagement ring at Christmas time, well, that's one gift that you will hold in very high esteem. It's not just a ring. It's a ring that represents a relationship and his love uh, for you. Well, that's what it means to esteem the elders very highly. Some of you look at us as Cracker Jack rings. Okay? Don't esteem us very highly. But the Lord wants you to esteem the elders very highly, if not personally, at least for their work's sake. He says that here, for their, because of their work. Elders are God's gift to you. Love them for the work that they do for you and the service they perform in the local church. The Bible says in 1 Timothy 5.17, Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and in doctrine. Now, he says in the same passage in 1 Thessalonians, be at peace among yourselves. You think, wow, why, why is that there? I understand, you know, recognizing the elders, esteeming them, then be at peace. 
So I want to borrow the words of a song and, and slightly change them to, um, it's a hymn, and to explain why this verse is here, be at peace among yourselves. You remember the song? Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry through with what the elders have counseled me to do. Okay, it doesn't fit the tune, but that's it, okay? We do not carry through with the counsel the elders have given. It says in Hebrews thirteen seventeen, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. I'll tell you something. If you seek the, the counsel of the elders, or if the elders come seeking you to give you counsel, follow it. It's for your good, and it's for your peace. Okay, the next is absolutely priceless, but it's a gift that God has given to each one of you. It is the gift of every believer here at Calvary Bible Chapel. Every one of you is a gift to each other. Every believer is a gift to one another. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul describes the church as a body. And he talks about this, and he says, Christ is the head, and we are members, uh, one another, of his body. Each part of us, or each one of us, is a part of that body, and just as my body needs every part, so the church needs every member to function properly. The interesting thing is that we are uniquely placed within the body by the Lord Jesus Christ, by the Spirit of God. He has placed each member in the body to function for the health and the benefit of the entire body. Some are more visible members, Paul goes on to talk about, and some are hidden members. I have members that you can see and members that are covered by skin, internal organs that you can't see. And you say, well, they're not very important if they're, if they're hidden. I wouldn't want to do without any of them. Okay? And there are members of the body that are more hidden. They, they tend to serve the Lord in more of a secret or, or hidden way. They're not the mouthpiece, shall we say. But I wouldn't want to be without any one of you. You're all members together. And if one member hurts, Jake has a, a finger that is hurting him right now, and it's messing with his whole body in many ways, try driving with just one hand and shifting gears at the same time. You know, um, it, all the things that you do and you say, well, I don't really need that finger. Oh, yes, you do. And we need each other. And if one member hurts, the whole body hurts. If one member rejoices, the whole body rejoices. Paul goes on to say that as members of this one body in 1 Corinthians 12, 25, we should care for one another. But how do we go about caring for one another? Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.14, Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly. Warn those who are unruly. The U.S. Army had a marching band that uh, was going to be in the, in the parade in town uh, one year. And uh, all of the mothers in town who had sons in uniform were there to, to watch their sons marched past them in this parade. And um, 
Johnny's mom was there and she turned and she looked at the other mothers very proudly and she says, oh, there's my Johnny. Just look at him. He's the only one in the army band who is marching in step. Well, Johnny's mother may be oblivious to her son in his out-of-step routine, but as a body of believers, we should be aware. We should be aware of other people within the body who are out of step and warn them. And so this is a body activity. This is an activity for the entire body. Um, see people who are out of step and warn them. This may be simply people who are um, marching to the beat of their own drum or those who refuse to follow leadership that God has placed over them or perhaps those who feel that you either do it my way or take the highway. Or it could mean something as simple as this. In the context of this book, Paul has already addressed an issue, and that is people who are too lazy to get out and go to work. And he calls them unruly in a previous passage or previous verse. And so he may be talking about them again, those people who refuse to go out and work and instead go into homes and create trouble in the, in the assembly. So those are unruly people too. And the body should not support those who refuse to work. The Bible says uh, those who will not work, let them not eat. So that kind of forces their hand to go back to work again, right? But as a body, we should care enough for the entire body, for one another, that we warn the unruly to bring them in line. The body also functions well when believers come together. The next verse says to comfort the faint-hearted. The faint-hearted. You know, there are people who come to know the Lord Jesus Christ and they're um, timid. They're faint of heart. And those types of people need a lot of encouragement. And so part of the function of the body and the individual members of the body is to build them up, to encourage them, to comfort them. Um, The interesting thing is the Bible talks about this in another way. It talks about trials that come our way. And it talks about the fact that when we go through trials, the Lord comforts us. And the comfort that we receive from the Lord is meant not just for your benefit, but it's to make you a comforter to those who go through the same trial. That is the purpose of trials. If you go through a trial and the Lord comforts you, Think in terms of, oh, this is meant for me to help somebody else going through this at a future date. Okay, And so you comfort those who are faint-hearted. Next, he says, uphold the weak. If a part of our physical body is injured or broken, think about it. I break my leg. Well, I've only got two. And I usually take a step on each leg. Right? But if I've got a broken leg, the rest of my body or crutches may need to help me, to uphold me, to hold me up. And so in the body, a person may go through a spiritual trial. They may go through a difficult time where they're really hurt by it. And it's time for the saints to gather around and hold them up, uh, uphold the weak. It's what a body does. Come alongside and strengthen them. 
Be patient with all. You say, well, how does that fit? I can see comforting the faint-hearted, upholding the weak, but be patient with all? How does that fit? Well, believers who think that they are strong often become very frustrated and very impatient with those who are weak in their minds. And I believe that the Lord has weak and timid and faltering believers in our midst to cause our character to grow. Not just the character of the weak and the faltering, but those who think they're strong, that their character might grow too. Type A personalities may have their act together, but the Lord wants to change their character. Not just their activities, but their character. And the one thing that is often lacking in a person with a type A personality is patience. Well, if that describes you, if you're a type A personality, um, don't be surprised if the Lord surrounds you with people who try your patience. Okay? Because the Lord is at work trying to change your character. And if they are in your life, no, not if they are, and they will be, they are in your life to teach you patience. For love is patient and kind, and the fruit of the Spirit is long-suffering. You see, God's not only interested in our outward activities. He's interested in changing the man or changing the woman in their character. Be patient with all. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone. This gift of caring for one another should lead us to do the opposite of retaliation. Have you ever had somebody do evil to you? I mean evil to you. Evil. Sin against you. Take advantage of you. Usually where it hits home the hardest or the most to most people is when we've been taken advantage of in financial matters or in you know possessions or things like that. Well, that guy really ripped me off. And all of a sudden it becomes... I'm going to get back at him. That's the retaliation part of it, right? How do you respond? Well, the the courts are filled with lawsuits from people who think that they were taken advantage of by another person in some way, in some form. Jesus taught us instead to do what? Turn the other cheek. Go the extra mile. If he asks for your cloak, give him your tunic also. You see, Jesus practiced what he preached. He was crucified by a mob just like us. And he said from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Paul talked about lawsuits in 1 Corinthians 6, and he's scratching his head. And he says, Is it so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one who will be able to judge between his brethren? What an utter failure. That in a church, even the size of this church here, is there not one single person here who can judge between his brethren? And then finally Paul says, look, it'd be better to accept wrong. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourself be cheated? That would be better than taking your brother or your sister to court and have unsaved people try to judge righteousness 
I am like you. We have all, at some point in our lives, been cheated or been wronged. But we are not called to retaliate. We are called to love one another because love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. All right, verse 15, the end part of it says, Always pursue what is good for yourselves and for all. You know, if we do this, if we don't retaliate, there's actually a benefit for you. First uh, Peter 3, 9 through 10 says this, Not returning evil for evil, reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. So the Lord is promising those who follow his counsel that there's a blessing attached to it. You may not see it in this life. It might not be until we see him. But there's also a benefit for all. In Romans 12:17 to 21, it says this, Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So if there's going to be any vengeance, if there's going to be any retaliation, leave that in the Lord's hands, because he'll do it right. Therefore, he says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Okay, no retaliation. So if we can put aside all of that, we come to the next gift, which is the gift of joy. The gift of joy. Paul says in verse 16, rejoice always. Do you know that, can I ask you a question? What is the shortest verse in the New Testament? Pardon me? Jesus wept. How many, how many agree it's Jesus wept? Okay. How many agree that it's something different? Yes. This verse. You say, wait a minute. More letters. Yeah, more letters in English. But in Greek, this is actually the shortest verse in the New Testament. Rejoice always. Okay. So you were both right. He was right when it comes to Greek, and you were right when it comes to English. I don't know what the facts are in other languages, but we'll stick with the Greek for now. Rejoice always. Do you know something? If you got no other gift this Christmas, and you just took this one, this gift, this gift of joy, this is more valuable than all the gold in the world. Rejoice always. This is so valuable that it will affect your health. It will affect your well-being. It will affect your entire life. Rejoice always. And God has given every believer, every believer, this gift of joy. But like every other gift that we receive, you have to open it. You have to use it. And yet some people will leave this gift in its pretty package on the table and they'll go through life just miserable 
when they could be rejoicing. Rejoice always. Why should we rejoice? Well, he's given us so many reasons to be joyful. Joy, you know, you say, well, you don't know the circumstances that I'm under. Doesn't matter. Even under terrible circumstances, the Bible says this. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you fall into various trials, knowing that the Lord is at work in your life, creating patience, endurance, and all of the good things that he's wanting to change in your character. So even those hard trials that we go through are meant to change us for good. Rejoice always. The cure for sadness, the cure for depression, the cure for despondency, the cure for hopelessness, the cure for gloom. It's all found right here in believing and acting on this verse. Rejoice always. It's a very valuable gift. Notice, um, oh, Paul writes to the Philippians. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Our rejoicing is based on the fact that we are in the Lord. We are in Christ. And all of the spiritual blessings that he has poured out upon his church are ours. Rejoice in the Lord. Notice that both verses, the one in um, Philippians and the one in 1 Thessalonians, say we are to rejoice always. Always. Always has to do with our time. Every part of our time. When we wake up in the morning, rejoice in the Lord. When our feet hit the floor, rejoice in the Lord. When we're sitting at the breakfast table with food in our bellies, rejoice in the Lord. When we go off to work, we have a job. Rejoice in the Lord. When we sit down at lunch and we open up that sandwich or whatever it is that we have, rejoice in the Lord. When we're able to drive safely back home in the evening, rejoice in the Lord. When we're able to put our heads down to sleep at night, rejoice in the Lord. When we wake up again alive the next morning, rejoice in the Lord. When we have, you get it? It keeps going. We have so much that we can rejoice about. Rejoice always, at all times. Next, we have the gift of an audience with God. Can you take out your cell phones right now, please? I'd like you to dial um, Washington, D.C., the White House, and, and call the president. I'd like you to speak to him right now. You laugh. You say it can't be done. I don't care who you are. You're not going to get through. All right? Try something simpler, all right? Pull your cell phone out and call your bank president, not your bank manager, your bank president. And I want you to talk to him or her about your current balance in your account. Not going to happen. All right, let's try something simpler. Having trouble with your computer? I am. It's falling apart. So mine is a bill, and, um, <laughs> and it's falling apart, literally. I mean, it's hanging by a thread. So I think I will call this afternoon the CEO of Dell Computers and say, hey, I need to get this fixed. You think they're going to answer? Okay, I'm going to get some offshore phone bank, and I'm going to complain to them, and they won't understand anything that I'm saying, and I'll ask to speak to a manager or a supervisor. Please let me speak to a supervisor, and I won't get through. 
Or I will, and they'll say, well, sir, <clears throat> your problem is that your computer is out of warranty. <laughs> well, that's not going to happen, okay? Even if you call your local takeout food restaurant down the street and you ask to speak to the boss, you probably won't get put through to the boss, okay? You see the problem? Even on earth, we're having difficulty getting through to the person that can do something for you. But at any time, day or night, 24-7, 365, you can pray, and immediately you have an audience with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That's going to the top. There's no one greater. That, my brothers and sisters, is going all the way to the top, and that is priceless. And it's there before his throne that you can speak to him about Obama or about your bank president or about your computer or about the food that you are about to eat. What a privilege and what an honor. What a gift. Therefore, we should pray. Well, how should we pray? Paul says pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. Without ceasing also has to do with our time. That means that you can continually be coming before the Lord for every detail of our lives. When is a good time to pray? Well, let me repeat. When your feet hit the floor in the morning, you should pray and rejoice. When you get up and you have your breakfast, you should pray and rejoice. When you go to work that morning, you should pray. You get the picture all day, throughout the day. There should never be a moment where you can't pray. You have a tough thing going on at work, and somebody, there's a conflict, a personality conflict, pray. I remember uh, a day that um, Luke and Jake had come up to what we affectionately call the Nut House. We were staying on a property on Walnut Street, and uh, so it became known as the Nut House. And they were talking about some issues in their lives that were going on that were just insurmountable. And I, they'd been out there for about a half an hour, and I came to the door of the truck, and Jake rolls down the window, and I said, what's going on, guys? I said, well, you know, you've got all these issues, you know, that are taking place, and, you know, it's just a lot of really hard things here. I said, well, why don't you pray? Why don't you pray? You know, well, what do you mean? I said, well, I said, it's insurmountable. You know, you can't change the person that you're you're trying to... Um, to uh, work with here. So why don't you pray? Let the Lord change the person. And I said, why don't you call up all the young people and gather together and have a prayer meeting tonight? Pray. Really? And I turned around and I walked away. And pretty soon, the young people started gathering to the nut house. <laughs> and they began to pray. And by the very next morning, God had changed the heart of the person that we were praying about very next morning. Well, talk about encouragement. They wanted to pray without ceasing. And so they have had, the young people at the assembly here have had multiple prayer meetings, spontaneous prayer meetings, opportunities where they see something that, that is beyond them, that only God can fix. And so they text, Facebook, whatever way they communicate with each other, smoke signals, whatever it is, and they all gather together and they pray. And every time they pray, 
something happens. God changes the whole outcome. It should encourage us to pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. The gift of prayer. Um, When is a good time to pray? All the time, any time. Well, there should be so much thanksgiving that comes from answered prayer that we have also been given a gift of thanksgiving. The Lord has given us a way of expressing our gratitude to Him for everything that He has done, uh, is doing, and is going to do for us. And that expression is called thanks. The Bible says, uh, in everything, give thanks. In everything, give thanks. Well, when should we give thanks? Well, when our feet hit the floor in the morning. We should be rejoicing and praying and giving thanks. And when we have breakfast that morning at the table, we should be praying and and rejoicing and giving thanks. And you see how the pattern works. We should be in everything. So the other two things had to do with our time. Here it has to do with circumstances. In everything, give thanks. Why? What about terrible things? Yeah, because we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purposes. Why should we give thanks? Because it is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. In everything has to do with our circumstances. Whether they seem good or bad, no matter what state we're in, exercise this gift of uh, thankfulness. So the next gift that we all receive as believers is the gift of a healthy church. This gift is not so much an individual gift. It's a corporate gift. Okay, It's like a family present. It's for the entire local assembly. What is it like to be a healthy church? Well, the first thing we see here is that a healthy church does not quench the spirit. If the spirit of God, the spirit of God is sometimes likened to fire. Uh, several verses of scripture that talk about this. So quenching him would be like taking out a fire extinguisher, spiritually speaking, and extinguishing him, putting him out. If you choke out the oxygen, the fire goes out. If we limit or hinder his work in our midst in the local church, we will die. Sin quenches the Holy Spirit. Man-made traditions quench the Holy Spirit. Self-imposed rules quench the, the Holy Spirit. A lack of unity, hard-heartedness, bitterness, all of these are fire retardants. Do not quench the Spirit. A healthy church does not despise prophecies. So in its primary sense, this verse means this. A prophecy... Uh, was when a prophet foretold the future, or they, they spoke the word of God. Well, at the time of this writing in 1 Thessalonians, the entire scripture, New Testament, had not been completed. And it was still being written. And there were prophets who spoke forth the word of God. But the gift of prophecy, in its primary sense, ceased once the New Testament was written. So we have for us preserved, preserved for us the writings of the prophets here in the New Testament. So today, 
we can flat out reject those who try to bring to us new revelation. In other words, it, when people say to, to today, when they say, well, what you have is good, you have the Old Testament, you have the New Testament, but God has revealed something new. We can reject it outright. Okay? God is not currently adding to the Scripture. So how do we make an application of this verse today? Well, in the secondary sense, we can despise the prophets, what the prophets have written, by making light of the written Word of God. Or if we put human tradition above or even on the same level as the Scripture. Or let our culture dictate what we should believe and practice. That's really rejecting or despising the prophecies. A healthy church will test all things. There are many preachers and teachers and Bible conference speakers, authors, and so on, who want to say things in a unique way. They want to say things new or try to make it sound like they've come up with some new discovery that nobody else knew before. And there's a simple test that is, um, for anything that is said, from this pulpit or any other pulpit, what saith the Scripture? What does the Scripture say in its proper context? Uh, what does the Scripture say? John, 1 John 4, 1 says this, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Test all things. Next, um, a healthy church will hold fast what is good. You know, the, the people group I really appreciate in uh, the book of Acts are the Bereans. The Bereans, Paul went to the Berean, um, to Berea, and he preached to them. And they received what he said, but then they did a very important thing. They searched the scripture to see if what he was telling them was true. Is it contained here? Does it match with what the Scripture says? And that's what it's talking about. Hold fast what is good. As if you hear something, test it against the Scripture, and if it's true, maintain it. Hold fast to that. Acts 17.11 says this about the Bereans. These were fair-minded, more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the Word with all readiness and searched the Scripture daily to find out whether these things were so. Whatever agrees with the Word of God, properly interpreted, is worth keeping. All right, a healthy church will abstain from every form of evil. Any form of false teaching, I will tell you, is evil and must be rejected outright. But false teaching also brings extremists. The early church faced this. When... um, a truth is taught, you say, well, if it comes from the Scripture, it must be right. True to a point. You can take a Scripture passage and you can take it to a, an extreme, either direction, and make it false. Okay, I'll give you a couple of examples of this. Are we saved on the basis of God's grace? Yes. God showered upon us his undeserved favor. That's grace. 
We are saved not by works, but by grace. The Scripture teaches us that. All through the New Testament, we read about grace, 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 grace. Some said, well, if we are saved by grace, that means that God forgives our sins freely, then we might as well sin it up because that will just magnify the grace of God. True or false? False. Okay? You're taking grace to an illogical conclusion. And so Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verse 1, what shall we say then? to those who were promoting this liberty and and sinful lifestyle. Paul says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Others were going to the opposite extreme. In Colossians chapter 2 and verse 21, it says, so those, those people were saying, well, no, no, it's not that we just live by grace and liberties and freedoms. Instead, we need to live by rules. We need to make sure that people follow a standard. And this standard includes do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish, Paul says with the using, according to the commandment and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. And you can have all the rules you want. Uh, Eric and I were talking about this just before, just after class today. It was funny, somebody that we knew um, growing up, and, and a, a brother who said, well, I'm not going to touch a woman. And so when he was dating his future wife, He held a string between her and him so that he wouldn't touch her. Does that change the heart? I'm not saying that it it made him lustful or anything else like that, but it didn't have any effect really on him personally and his thoughts. Yeah, there's a distance of a string, but it does nothing for the heart. And so what Paul is saying here, look, that's an extreme the other way. Both extremes are evils a healthy church will avoid. Okay, the gift of sanctification. Sanctification, we read here, is from the God of peace himself. How did God bring about our sanctification? He brought about peace by reconciling sinners to himself through the death of his son, What is sanctification? Well, for those of you taking here's the difference class, you should be able to quickly tell me that there are four types of sanctification, right? Pre-conversion sanctification, which is how God set us apart before we were saved. Positional sanctification means that when we were saved, God declared us righteous. We are set apart for him to, and, and he basically calls us holy, perfect, righteous in his eyes because we are in Christ. That's positional sanctification. That's our position before God. Progressive sanctification is our day-to-day practice. Here's our position. You say, we are holy. And you look at your life and go, no, I'm not. I'm down here somewhere. But our practical sanctification, or progressive is maybe a better way of saying it, is that we continuously grow in our 
walk with the Lord and we continuously become set apart more and more uh, for his purposes and away from sin. Perfect sanctification is what we're all looking forward to, and that is the moment we are raptured or the moment we um, are with the Lord, we will be perfectly sanctified. That's God's promise to us in verse 23. He says, God himself will sanctify you completely. Uh, The sanctification Paul is speaking about here, I believe, is progressive sanctification. He's really praying that our spirit, soul, and body will be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, we may live in such a way right now that we are set apart inwardly and outwardly uh, for the Lord. Verse 24 says, He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. It is God's faithfulness, not ours. That's all the assurance we need to know that uh, he who began a good work in us will complete it. All right, our time is running up by really quickly, so let's just move on. The, The gift of intercession is next. When we are on our knees, we can move the hand of omnipotence. Paul sought the prayers of the saints, knowing that God hears and answers prayer. The next is the gift of affection. It says, greet all the brethren. What is a universal sign of affection? Well, kisses too, but a hug. Okay. Greet all the brethren. An embrace is a universal sign of affection. Today, typically, uh, a handshake is a form of affection. Men sometimes embrace each other and, you know, give a great big bear hug and a pat on the back, you know, and that's a form of affection man to man. Women are usually a little more tender. Oh, dear. You know. But the idea is to show affection one to another. Paul says to greet the brethren with a holy kiss. And in many cultures, this is still practiced today. You go to Italy or someplace like that and you go up to somebody and you don't shake their hands. You, you hold them by the face and it's a mwah and a mwah on either side. Sometimes it's even three, you know, left, right, left or however it goes, you know. And in many cultures, it's still practiced that way. This is not a passionate, lustful, uh, sexual advance. Paul describes it here as a holy kiss. But due to abuses, most of this has been done away with, especially with the opposite sex. Um, and certainly a kiss. I remember um, at Christmas time in particular at my home church that there was one man in particular who would love to go around and kiss people on the cheeks, and, and the girls would all run away because he would slobber all over them. And so it's something that you don't want to do to anyone that does not appreciate close contact, okay? A typical practice today, would t- I mean, a, 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 an accepted practice today would typically be a handshake. But even there, you have to be careful. We have guests, as you know, who come to our home on a regular basis, and some of them come from the Middle East. And uh, one day I had a very valuable lesson taught to me um, by, by um, husband and wife, and he came and he threw his hand out and shook his hand and, you know, greeting. And I put my hand out to shake hands with his wife, whom he had just introduced to me. And she had her hands down like this and never raised them. And she says, I never touch a man who is not my husband. I go, oh, good lesson to learn. And so I learned early on in, in this that 
uh, better with the opposite sex not to even extend your hand unless they first extend their hand to you. Then you have a little bit of a clue, okay? So the whole point here is, as believers, we should show affection one to the other. It doesn't even have to be with a kiss, but it, it can be in some fashion. We have the gift of the Bible. Well, this is a sermon all by itself, so I, I'm not going to go through that now. Uh, but the emphasis of the passage is to read it. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. And finally, the gift of God's grace. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Grace as we said, is God's undeserved favor to us. With all of the gifts that we have been given, that he has given to us, I would certainly say that he has demonstrated his grace to us. And with all these gifts that we've talked about this morning, I think it's going to be the best Christmas ever. Don't you? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have given and given and given. And it says in your word that every good gift and every perfect gift comes from you. And Lord, talk about perfection in these gifts. They're so wonderful, so great, so marvelous, Lord, that we think that we are very, very rich indeed. Lord, we thank you so much for the precious promises of your word, the precious gifts that you've given to us, all of the things that we have come to enjoy because we have come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord. Lord, help us to appreciate the things that really matter in life. And we just pray, Lord, that this Christmas season we might appreciate these gifts more than any other. We ask in your name. Amen.